Hey, what's up? And welcome to another episode of Men's Ride. It is an insane moment in the history of the United States of America, and many of us are not surprised by it, um, but we are suffering through it as a result of it, and a lot of us are heavy. I wasn't sure whether I wanted to go with the episode that we had uh, regularly scheduled to present this week as a part of our Men Thrive offering, but I decided not to. Uh, I had a conversation this week with my dear brother, Mark Lamont Hill, and we talked about where we were in this moment. We talked about activism. We talked about mental health. We talked about our own relationship, and as opposed to airing what we were going to, uh, which will ultimately be a great conversation with a dear friend of mine by the name of Rich Fresh. Uh, we're we're going to air this. There's so much that has changed this week since we had this conversation. Uh, uprisings and rebellions have happened all over the country, and many of us are seeing a clear indication about why the uprisings and the rebellions are happening as we're looking at police brutality and excessive force that's taking place in the face of in many cases, nonviolent protest. But we're also seeing an incredible amount of provocateur activity where there are those that are being labeled as allies and many who we know are not allies of any kind uh, that are disrupting those rebellions and those shows of force and in many cases, peaceful presentations of anger. And it's making many of us even more angry. And so... I hope that this conversation is one that is uh, enlightening, at the very least uh, informing, or in some cases inspiring. If it's not, I hope that you tell us. Uh, but I was excited to have this conversation with Mark and wanted to share it with you. Hey man, how are you? I'm hanging in here, man. I'm 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 trying I'm trying to stay sane and stay free and get it'll help get us free, man. It's it's hard out here, man. It's it's this week is depressing. You know, we fighting, but but it's depressing. It is, man, and and I um, for for folks that are on my live, I'm I just went up with Mark Lamont Hill, on the Men Thrive Live, because uh, I, I reached out to Mark this morning, um, and and we've been friends for a long time, known each other a long time, probably before we knew ourselves, and and we we've seen, we've seen these moments happen in a lot of ways, but I don't think we've ever been in this place. And, and I really wanted to have a conversation with Mark um, because I think a lot of us are, are having a difficult time contextualizing uh, the moment psychologically. Mm -hmm. and, and because we're, we have a hard time contextualizing it psychologically, we're having a hard time figuring out what, what do we do. Um, and especially if we don't live in Minneapolis or – if we don't feel connected to a hardcore uh, level of, of activism. So, I, I mean, like, like Mark, for, for you, as you, as you've looked at this moment, how is it different for you? I mean, some of it is different for me because I'm older. Um, <laughs> honestly, you know, I've been, I've been on the ground marching and resisting since I was a teenager, you know, in Philly. So, you know, I was those young people yelling and those young people marching and those young people ducking bullets and getting tear gas. And so now at 41, part of it is just, I, I, I think about it as a parent. I think about it like, what does it mean for those young people to be so vulnerable and so and so endangered out there? Um, because I'm no longer the primary, I won't say the primary target. I'll say, you know, there's some young men like Ahmaud Arbery who are 25 
yeah. who, who are seen as more of a threat. You know, sometimes if I grow my hair out, you see these little grays and stuff. You might think <laughs> I actually got a job and I'm not going to do no harm, you know? So, um, it's a little bit different for me than it is for them. So, so I can kind of see. But George Floyd was four, 46 years old. 46. Yeah. Like that, 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 that in, in, in so many ways is supposed to be when you've aged out of right. a primary suspect mode. And, and, and I think for me, I don't know if I, I never had faith that white supremacy would change. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just seen too much and I understand history. And, and even when you think about how long it takes to change culture, um, we've only been out of slavery half the time we were in. it, And so even as a nation, um, historically, we're not, we're not mature yeah. uh, in, in so many ways. And so I don't think I was confused about that. I just don't know. Mark, I just don't know if I believe how many um, people who, 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 have, who have drank off the pit of white supremacy, who have come up on the Gerber stages of white supremacy, and have had full-grown meals on white supremacy, actually believe and believe we're not human. Yeah. I think that was the thing. That's the thing that I don't think I have fully grasped until this moment. You know, I, I have I have flashes. And by the way, some people are saying that your mic is a little low. I don't, I, I don't know if it's them or you, but um, if there's a way okay. to turn the volume up, I'm going to try and get a little closer, too. Um, I worked at Fox News uh, oh, back in the day. It wasn't the way it was now, but it was still, you know, pretty, pretty racist. And there'd be moments where you go through your day living in New York and Philly, and you live in New York and Philly, and you and you you you, you surround yourself with liberal white folk, you know, <laughs> which then, is a whole nother discussion. The whole liberal white folk is a whole other thing, <laughs> man. And but then but then you go and, and you debate Bill O'Reilly, and then you get these emails. And I would I, if I was on at eight o'clock by eight ten, I would have five hundred emails. I, People call me all kinds of shit I never heard before, right? Yeah. I learned new racial slurs. And a lot of them were coming from the middle of the country. And what I realized is there's a pocket of America that never thought we were human, that always uh, held on to this thing um, that I didn't encounter in my day-to-day life. So sometimes I would get those reminders, but those reminders were, were, in, were in and out. Now, to your point, when you look at what's happening in Minnesota, when you look at what's happening in New York City and Central Park, mm-hmm you realize that this isn't just the flyover states. This isn't just the people who wear MAGA hats. That there's a way that the, the, the failure to see black humanity is part and parcel of American life. And that's what wears on our psyches. Yes. It's, not, it, it's not just the person that calls me a nigga. Like, I, I, have, I have a mental space carved out for that. Yes. Right? I know who they are. And I can so actually deal to, with that. Right. Like, I'm real good with that. Yeah. Yeah, but imagine being in Central Park. You done did all. You done done everything you're supposed to do in, in theory, right? To check off the boxes of white supremacy, right? I went to Harvard. I'm dressed properly. I'm speaking English the, the the quote unquote right way. I'm doing all this stuff, dude. I got binoculars. I got binoculars, and I'm looking at birds. There is nothing less threatening than a Negro bird watching at Central Park on Memorial Day. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's no doubt that he wasn't doing harm, and because he didn't do what she wanted him to do, right? She was able to weaponize her whiteness yes. in very explicit fact. And again, that's what's scary, right? D- Barbecue Becky is scary because it's like, okay, you think you got more citizenship than me. You can tell me what to do and how to do it. Like, that's his own kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But this was different because this is sinister. The shit she did was sinister. She's like, I know 
that if I make this call and mention your blackness, you can die. And I want you to know that I know, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to do it. And, and I'm going to tell you I'm going to do it. Yes. I'm going to tell you yes. that I'm getting ready to tell them you're threatening right. when you're not. Right. And, and, the, and, and I, think, I think that's the thing for me, Mark. I think for me is the, pre, the premeditated nature of the things that I'm seeing. Yeah. When, when I see two men driving in a pickup truck, mm. premeditatedly going to kill somebody. Yes. I, I don't get in the back of a pickup truck with guns. Right. With somebody else trailing to block them off. Right. With them recording without it being premeditated. Right. I don't know the physicality of the body, right? I, I've been trained as a police officer to know how the body functions. I've right. been trained as a police officer to know what certain holds and pressure does to the body. Right. I literally create a hold. I literally create pressure on the neck that can do nothing but asphyxiate me. Right. And then I do it slowly. Right. With people watching. Yeah. And then the, the the nerve for somebody to actually ask me, can I check his vitals? Right. And I say no. And so I, I, I'm not confused about white supremacy at all. I think the thing that scares me in this moment or infuriates me, depending on the moment, is, is the brazen, premeditated nature of publicly um, removing our humanity for the purpose of death. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and that's where I feel like we are in this moment. And and I don't know if our generation has ever been asked to respond with to that. No. Because we never had we rarely, I'll say ne- not never, but rarely had it that explicit. Like we all grew up knowing that white women who called the police might be secretly weaponizing whiteness. And we know people who got their ass whooped by police or who got killed by police. We all know those people. But this digital technology has made it such that we see it. We got to hear her thought process. We got to watch Amara Arbery get killed. We got to watch George Floyd. You know, so so when we see these things, this generation has it has to confront it in a very different, more explicit fashion in some ways than we did. Mm. And that's that, that's torture on your psyche. That when you walk through the park or you walk down the street or you go for a jog or you go to school, because because Amy Cooper isn't just. Uh, a high-ranking b- official in a financial institution. She's also your professor, your high school right. teacher, your, your doctor. Th- th- they won't give you medicine, when you pain medicine when you need it because they think, you know, all the all this stuff is part of the equation. So I think these young people have a wear and tear on their psyche that we mm-hmm. didn't have in, in the same way. And, and there's a sense of terrorism, right? Because the, the point of terrorism, you know, is is that you see trauma, you see violence, and it's political intimidation. It prevents you from doing other things. So, so I'm scared to do all kinds of shit. If I'm scared to walk through Central Park in the daytime, I'm I'm scared. I'm, there's so many things I'm scared to do because of the the possibilities. And that to me is 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 maybe the most dehumanizing thing that that I can imagine. But but I think and, and this is this is what's hit me this week and the heaviness of it. And and I'm really interested in your thoughts around. I mean, like I. Listen, I, I know that there are a lot of people dealing with this, and I, I, I'm constantly thinking about black men. And I, I'm thinking about yeah. the, the fact that we have the lowest life expectancy of any demographic in this country. I think yeah. about the toxic stress and anxiety and depression. I think about the fact that I had a family member. My, my grandfather committed suicide. Yeah. Um, I, I've had 
family members navigating um, real issues of the inability to assess identity disconnected from their narrative. And, and so I'm, I'm curious because when you, when you say like, I've already checked off the boxes of everything I can do to not feel threatening to you. Right. Like I already did that. Like I got, I got a PhD in how to not be the threatening nigga <laughs> when I come out right. of the house. Right. And, and I'm teaching my sons how to not be that dude. Mm-hmm. But, but none of these dudes were that. No. This, this no. was not a, this was not a, a Tamir Rice in the heat of the moment, the police pull up and as a result of bad tactics, never assess whether he's a threat or not. And their fear is projecting. This is different. And so like it, it, it got me to thinking about kind of the, the psychological value proposition that a lot of us came up with, with code switching. Mm-hmm. And, and most of us, we could have whole sessions about, I can code switch better than you. Cause I can be in this space, this space, this space, and this space and move with all of them. And it wasn't until this week that I realized code switching was slavery. Yeah. Because if you're telling me I have to pretend to be somebody else in order to be embraced, that's there's slavery in that. And so as we think about how do we talk to brothers in this moment from, from teenage kids who are trying to assess what the hell does this really mean to our grandfathers who, who are assessing this. Like, yeah. I'm curious from your vantage point, how do we begin to psychologically un cause, cause I want to get to the activism piece with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, but my fear is that we constantly try to fight damaged yeah. as opposed to assess our compounded trauma, navigate that compounded trauma, both historically and personally, figure out what's, what's the stuff I'm about to pack up, whether it's therapy or whether it's meditation or whether it's whatever, so I can use that as I go to fight this. And you and I have never really had that conversation before. No. Like, we, we've really talked about all of the strategy stuff. And again, I, I, I want to get to that because I think that there are brothers listening right, there are people listening right now that are just like, well, what, what are we supposed to do? But my concern is, why do we keep trying to fight damaged mm-hmm. instead of create some healing moments and a pathway to healing as we fight? Yeah. No, I, I think that's the right question. I think that's the right approach. Um, I think about... Um, I, 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 think, I think about that that Frederick Douglass idea of it being easier to, you know, build strong men, was it to, to, uh, to build strong boys and to repair damaged men? Yes. Um, how do we do that in a way that acknowledges the legitimate issues we face? Like we don't code switch because we don't know no better, right? We, we code switch because we want to, we want to come home alive. It's a survival mechanism. Yeah. Right. We want we want to get the job. We want to be able to navigate the world. We want to access these spaces. We want to we want to create mechanisms of freedom for our people. I mean, all of these things um, is um, it, all of it's complicated, right? And and somebody just pointed out, code, they said code switching isn't 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 speaking proper English. Of course, no. The idea code switching is far more complex than that. But 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 the idea that we have to even navigate these spaces in different ways and put on different hats and different identities um, is itself um, critical. But there's the internal work 
um, Indy Iris saying the same thing, right? That there's internal work that we have to do as well um, in order to get where we want to be. And I think that that's the part, like you said, we haven't touched on, right? We know the external strategies that are for survival and they're legitimate, but part of what we have to do instead of making them implicit, like you said, you and I have never even talked about it, mm -hmm. is when we deal with, particularly with young men, is to let them know that who they are at the core is enough, right? To begin from that place. You know, to say, yeah, you might navigate the world in all these different ways. You might put on this voice and this accent and this identity and these body movements and, 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 and these cultural tropes, and you might draw on this and draw on that. And that, that might be cool. And you might be into some of that stuff, too, because blackness is not monolithic, as That's we learned with Christian Cooper. But the point is, you never want people to not believe that who they are at the core is, is, is good enough. But the problem is, we live in a world where white supremacy is so thoroughly shot through our consciousness that we don't know who we are. We don't know who we are. And, and, and that is a more fundamental challenge. You know, I, I think about the Nation of Islam and that call, accept your own and be yourself, mm -hmm. right? We don't know who ourselves are. So part of the internal work is figuring that out to me. It's figuring out who I want to be absent all this white supremacy, absent all this how, how have you done that? Man, it's been a, it, for me, it's been a journey of unlearning. You know, and, and that ain't where I want, that's not how I want your children, you know, to, to, to move through the world. Your sons, I don't have sons, but but I, that, that's not how, or, or, but I wouldn't, want, I wouldn't want my daughters to move through the world that way, right? It, there, there's, a, there's an idea, I think, um, that to navigate the world as a black man, you have to put on all this armor. Yeah. And sometimes you can confuse that armor for flesh, right? You start to think it's actually yours. It's, it, that's who you are at, at the core. Yes. And, and, and so what I try to do at every turn, at every step, is reflect and say, is this who I am? Is this who I want to be? Is this what I am? You know, and, by, and, and, and reflecting on that. So a lot of it was like, do I enjoy um, certain activities? Uh, what is my emotion, emotional register? What brings me joy and peace? When am I at my happiest? When do I feel most loved? Mm. You know, um, and... I, I read Kese Lehman's book. Um, people should read that. It's called uh, uh, Heavy. Uh, it's a memoir. It's one of the most beautiful memoirs I, I think we've, we've seen in the last hundred years. Um, but one of the things Kese talks about is good love, healthy choices, and second chances. Mm. And I think the thing that has made me feel... Say, say that again. Say that again. Good love, healthy choices, and second chances. And, and this idea that we as black men, and certainly black women, we just happen to be talking about black men at this moment, but this idea that we are all worthy of good love, healthy choices, and second chances is how I have found my way to, to internal peace and joy, right? One, good love is both at the emotional and romantic level, right? We all deserve to be loved well. And you, and when you walk through the world, you, you meet a whole bunch, you can go to a meeting, you can have an interaction at the drive-thru, you know what I mean? You, you can talk to somebody on customer service. You be like, yo, you haven't been loved well. <laughs> you can just tell that how they navigate the world, they haven't been loved well. You know? So so part of it is, is figuring is figuring out that we're worthy of good love, that we deserve to be loved well. And um, to think about it at the personal level and the structural level, right? What does it mean to, you can't, good love means loving your body, your face, your lips, your hips, your nose, your religion, your cult, you know, to, to, that's good love too. And, and those two things work well together. Healthy choices. So, again, part of it is structural, right? I need a community garden. I need food security. I need to be able to eat. But I also need to know that I deserve how many How many of us make unhealthy choices? Not, not because we don't have access to a healthy choice, but because we don't think we deserve a healthy choice. 
How many of us have picked a bad relationship, an unhealthy relationship, an unhealthy food choice, an unhealthy whatever, self-medication? Because we, because we don't believe that we deserve healthy choices, right? Mm-hmm. And the more good love you get, the more you want a healthy choice. But we all fuck up. We all fuck up, right? We all deserve second chances. Again, structurally, we deserve second chances, right? If I get caught with drugs and my, and my white counterpart gets caught in drugs, I shouldn't be going to prison while they get therapy. That's cool. Right. But I'm talking about something deeper right now. I'm talking about second chances. I'm talking about forgiving each other, loving each other into forgiveness, being able to say brother to brother, you know, I forgive you. I need you to forgive me. Mm -hmm. Um, But also to forgive ourselves. We are so damn hard on each other. I mean, and I love my brother Shamik Moore. I just give you just as one example. He was on Twitter yesterday and I interacted with the brother. So I'm not talking out of school. Um, and he went on Twitter and did an IG Live later sort of talking about these police interactions and what we should do in order to stop being beaten by police or in order to stop being attacked. Right. Or that. He's saying it's not, he wasn't absolving the police, but he was saying we should think about what we do first and what we do to each other first. And it's like we are so damn forgiving to everybody else except ourselves. We throw each other away. We throw ourselves away. We beat up on each other. We haven't forgiven ourselves for so much of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so... My journey to, to having any sense of peace in this crazy-ass white supremacist, misogynist, patriarchal, homophobic, capitalist, imperial world, the only thing that's given me any sense of purpose is realizing that I deserve good love, healthy choices, and second chances. And so every day where I feel short of that, and there ain't no way to feel loved in this world. And I don't mean to keep that, but it, it's, there's no way to feel loved in this world watching Amar Arbery get killed or watching George Floyd get killed. There's no way to do that. But, but reminding myself that I deserve it. Mm-hmm. gets me back to my center mm-hmm. and then I can meditate then I can see therapy then I can pray then I can talk to you then I you know I can do all those other things but I gotta begin from a place that I deserve something other than what just happened on that video yep yep and and I don't know what do you do oh what do you how do you get there and 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 in a real way um I think you've spoken to it, but I, I don't know if I've ever, I don't know if I've ever processed it mm. through the lens of deserving because I've, I've processed it through the lens of, um, my communal, my communal definition. Yeah. And so I, I have to, I have to acknowledge that I was blessed of being born into a space that I was loved. Yeah. Um, but to yes. your point, but to your point, I've been really intentional over the last, I don't know, five years of of curating a community of people mm-hmm. who love me. Yep. And so whether it's you as a as a friend and business partner or whether it's my wife or or whether it's it's the the, the guys who are around me. Um, I don't have to spend a lot of time reminding myself what I deserve because I've curated yeah. an ecosystem of people who remind me yeah. what I deserve. Yeah. And, and so when, when you ask me how, it's taken a long time to be really honest about people who I love but can't be around. <laughs> and, and, and so... And and even if it's family, and, and people, especially family, yeah, and people who I love, but they just so fundamentally don't want the same things that I want 
that we can be at the family reunion together, but they're not in my circle. Yeah. And and so it's it's been hard because I think not not so much through this lens of like traditional survivor's remorse, because I don't think it's a it, some of that is is us navigating our levels of privilege and sisters that don't have, have the same privilege. But a lot of it has been like, you just don't want what I want. And because you don't want what I want, I got to be real careful about, I can't hang out with dudes who don't like their wife. Yeah. Like, I got some dudes I love, but they don't like their wife. Wow. I can't hang out with you because the, the energy you bring to wherever we are mm. is anti my wife. Mm. And so I like my wife a lot. <laughs> right. And, and <laughs> right. I want to keep liking her. I got a hard enough time and I like and love my wife. You don't. And mm. so who you bring around, the energy you bring around disintegrates where I need to be as mm. I navigate this love relationship with her that requires me constantly challenging myself. When I think about white supremacy, that's a little bit more challenging because now if that's the same analogy, I would be, I would have to say, I can't hang around people who don't love black people. Right. There's a problem with that because there's a lot of people who don't love black people, right. not because they inherently don't love black people, but because everything that they've been taught and consumed that's conditioned them for a passive-aggressive love relationship that mm. psychologically says, I really love black people. But in my heart, it says, my heart's been hardened to who black people are. And so my heart is telling my head that it don't know what the hell it's talking about. Mm. So, so I hate on my boy. Right. Because I don't really want him to win. Because I ain't won yet. Right. I would kill somebody for him. Right. Like, right. the juxtaposition of that, Mark, is insane. Yeah. Because what it's saying is, I love this dude enough to do some grimy shit for him. But I hate the thought of him winning before me because yeah. I've been taught that I got to win first. Right. And so I, I've, I've tried, Mark, to... to make sure I'm super careful about whose energy I'm, I'm allowing to feed me and the, and the ecosystem that I'm in because I'm not strong enough to, to, to wage war against white supremacy in a space that I'm not surrounded by that circle of people that when I'm confused about who I am, they remind me who I am. When I'm confused about what my gift is, they they remind me what my gift is. When I'm confused about um, my value proposition, because I'm navigating all these spaces that are telling me I'm not Mark Lamont Hill. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, but see, you and I, you and I have been there before, though, right? No, that's real. That's real. There, there have been market that's structures that have tried to tell us that we should not be friends, right? And that, that we should not commiserate with each other. Right. And, 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 and enough of our friends have fallen prey to believing that cats that are their comrades are their enemies. Right. And so I've, I've, I, I think the thing that I've done that's been most successful is curate a space because I don't always know what I deserve. Mm. 
And so I just had Steve Pammon. Um, Steve Pammon is, is, is just, I mean, he, he's a whisperer to me sometimes. And I said something to him and, and I said, Steve, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just a strategist. We were talking about something in particular. And he was like, why are you playing yourself? He was like, the reason you don't move in places the way you're supposed to is because you keep defining yourself as lower than what you are. And the problem is you're making a great living off of how you define yourself. Right. But that definition is still so below who you actually are. Right. You're killing yourself happy. Right. Right. And you just... and. It, but it, it, it's it's successful enough that you could not notice it if you're not really trying. And that's the greater damage, right? And that's right. what he was saying to me. And so, yeah. and so I didn't mean to be that long winded. No with shit, it, that was but, awesome. but <laughs> I, it, it 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 for me, it's just been if I don't curate that space, then I can't even get to your place of of knowing what I deserve. Right, right. And I think I have done a poor job of curating that at times. And so even when I knew what I deserved, I couldn't figure out why I wasn't getting there. Because mm. I'm like, I'm like, I got all these people. What's going on? You know, and, and then it, it, it's only in the last couple of years that I've realized the type of work I need to do. Again, some of it is the personal stuff, the the competitive stuff, the the the. the The first time you and I like met met was Hip Hop vs America, hmm. BET. Uh, I think it was 2006. Was it yep. 2006, 2007? But I think it was 06. And um, at the end of the show, you said to me, and we had we had never had any conversation prior to this. You said, you and I are going to be in this business and in this world. You said, we have to be here for each other in a way that other generations have not. I had, there was, there was no context to it. There was no, <laughs> We, 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 hadn't had, we ain't had no plans. We literally, you were hosting the show. I was a guest. It was like my first time on BET. And um, and that was that was, that was was literally the, the extent of the conversation. And it always stuck with me. But more importantly, you, you did the work of doing that. Mm. You know what I mean? And like you said, there, there's, an, there's, a, there's an interest in this business of pitting people against each other. And we've had the ebbs and flows of the career, you know? It's times where I'm trying to get on BET just to just to get to get seen and you hosting. It's times where I'm hosting and we and you we bringing you on. It's times where I'm getting invited to 100 universities. It's times where you get invited to 200 universities. And I'm just trying to I'm I, I work concession. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it's, it's, but but in none of those times did, did we make a decision to blame each other or to fight for each other's space, but instead to say, you know what, let's open up more space for each other. You know what I mean? But with not this, not to mention, Mark, though, but what's real. You've been there for me privately. Insane. In those scenarios when when I was wanted. And like so that that to, to me that's even deeper. Like it's 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 great when you can say, Let, let's get Jeff on this broadcast, um, because he can speak to this. Or yo, this university, you've invited me there six times and I can't come a seventh. Um, so why don't you have Jeff come speak? I'm talking about dog when I'm in trouble with my family mm. and I call you and I'm like, yo, Mark, when we do that hardest thing that it is for brothers to do <laughs> and be like, yo, man, I'm not good. I don't have, I'm in need of, mm. and I can't remember a time, bro. You made that difficult like ever. 
I, I am overwhelmed at the fact that every time I've asked you, and, and I, I mean, it, it's not as it's been that many times, but those times were meaningful to me. Yeah. You, you never made it difficult. It was always like, say less, bro. Where right. should I send it? Say yes, bro. When do you need to talk? And so I'm so thankful that, because I don't even remember that conversation. <laughs> that, 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 that makes it more powerful. That's, I don't even I know remember that conversation. <laughs> what I remember is you being that. And so what I remember is when I called you to say we should do this business together and you didn't flinch. What I remember is when I've called and say, yo, dog, can, can I hold something for a minute? Because I'm tight and and you've never flinched. And so I'm, I'm super thankful for that. But but I'm, I'm wondering for for cats in this moment. Right. That are like I keep watching black men dying. Yeah. And and uh, and. And I'm talking about peaceful people yeah who want to wage war yeah like that's when you know stuff is shifted like i'm i'm not talking about self-proclaimed um folks that have always been like right. i'm ready to get my gun right or folks that that start saying i'm from this school of, of of black nationalism versus this school of civil rights and all those kind of rhetorical conversations people have yeah. i'm talking about people who i know to be religiously people of peace mm -hmm. who are like, I'm ready to get this gun and go hurt somebody. Yeah. Like, how do we navigate that? Because that's what I, that's what I see in, in a lot of men and women that are like, yo, if one more motherfucker says something to me, yeah. Like, it might be a blessing that people are still on stay-at-home orders. <laughs> right. It's, no, no, for real. No, I, I was in Ferguson. I know what it's like when they're not. Because if, if, if I was in Baltimore at Target and, some, and somebody in typical white supremacist fashion just didn't say, excuse me. Right. right. I'm ready to give a whole different kind of energy, and they think, might think it's about the cart. Right. <laughs> and, and I'm starting to hit them over the head like Aubrey, Aubrey, Aubrey. George, 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 because right. I don't know in this moment, Mark, how to control th this, this, this feeling of, of, um, of, of psychological um, anger met with physical impotence. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough thing because everybody's hurting so much. I think about Ferguson because in many ways, Ferguson was like a, 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 a boil over of that. Um, and there was no stay at home order. Right, and, and you saw people from St. Louis, people from Ferguson, people from Chicago, people say, I was from Philly. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So we were all out there, and there was so much pain and so much anger because we'd had enough, and we get to that moment where we've had enough. The key for me is to figure out how to use that energy strategically and tactically because we can't beat the state at its own game. You can talk about that Second Amendment stuff if you want. I don't yeah. care how many guns you got. You ain't beating the state at the gun game. You know what I mean? We went out there. I remember uh, it, was, it was the year after Ferguson. Um, the anniversary of Ferguson, we were all out and we were at this party actually in Ferguson. Uh, it was a concert, and then we heard somebody got shot right on right on Canfield. So we all ran down. There's a whole bunch of us. Uh, I think Rosa Clemente was there. Tyler Kwali was with us. Um, M1 from Dead Prey. Whole bunch of folk, right? And we we got right to the edge of the street. It was like a movie, and we and we wanted to go out there and just march and protest and run. And it was Matula. It was M1 who said, "Wait a minute, this ain't tactical." 
Mm-hmm. He said, he said, he said, he said, the, he said, the rules of warfare are not to just go out and fight at all times because then you just die. You have to know when to retreat. You have to know when to pause. You have to know when to re-engage. You're not being shook by not going out there. But what you going to do with tanks and, and, and drones and, and helicopters, that's not the way to fight. Similarly, all of us hitting the street or me fucking up somebody in Target, while it may be momentarily gratifying, you know what I mean? It's, it's not tactically wise. But we also don't want to lose that revolutionary energy that people have right now, particularly from the people who ain't out there every day. Because there's people who would come to every panel, every rally, every speech, every protest. They get arrested with us. And those 12 people are useful. But when we get the other 88, even if it's just for a week, we got to figure out what we can do. So for me, it's always about targeting or honing that energy into a tactic or a project, a specific thing. Um, in this case... I think we need to give people winnable battles. And there's another thing you taught me, you know, when when you do student organizing, when you work with youth, as you did with NAACP, it's young people don't believe they can win sometimes until they do. That's so right. Small victories build up into big victories. So right now you got one officer, just as an example, you got one officer who is attempting, who, who, who's probably going to be tried with something. Yeah. Right. But the other three may not. And honestly, there's no guarantee that any of them win. That's right. A winnable battle is to make sure that all four of them get 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 charged. I'm an abolitionist. My goal, prison isn't my resolution to any of these social problems. My goal, I don't see prison as the, as, as the ultimate answer. But there is a conversation to be had about four versus one. Why? Because now the conversation is you can't, it's not enough to just say don't kill black people. We now have to also say you can't watch black people die as an officer. That's right. That's a winnable battle. That's right. Right. And then the next winnable battle might be fighting for civilian review boards. Because we can say, look, every look at Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia. Look here, look there. Everywhere we go, when police police themselves, we don't get justice. So now all we're asking is for police to be policed by out by non-police. Just like every other job, right? Yeah. You know, so it's a winnable battle. But if we give people those strategies, right? November. Defeating Trump, winnable battle. Yep. If you get a bunch of Negroes who are enraged right now and hand them registration, voter res- voting is a tactic. It's not the strategy. It's not the overall. That's right. It's not, That's it's right. not the end game. That's right. But if but if you get if you get from eliminating Trump and civilian to civilian review boards to getting these four officers accountable, forget whether we use the language of policing or prisons or not, but just accountable in some form or fashion beyond just getting fired. Yep. You can get you can get fired for stealing money. You know, I got fired from Little Caesars in high school, right? Getting fired is not enough to kill somebody, right? So so once you get but, those, yeah. but but you start talking about winnable battles, I will there, there's two things I'll take. One, I will take beginning to develop policy that says when you get fired from a police force for something, you can't be hired by another police yes! force. Yes. Yes. You can't That's, be hired yes! by a, so, so when, 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 when somebody gets, when somebody robs a bank, and I mean embezzles, if I'm a teller yeah. and I'm stealing money out the register, out my, out my, out my drawer, I'm never going to get a job at a bank again. I can go do time. I can go do community service, whatever it is. I am never going to get a job at a bank ever again. You have police officers that'll get fired from this police force for excessive force. 
Right. And get hired at another police force less than a year later. Right. And and so that to me, you start talking about winnable battles around policy. One for me is beginning to create um, language that says if you are fired from a police department for these reasons, you cannot be hired by any other deputized force that carries a gun. That means that means not you trying to shift it up. And while I cannot go to another city, I go to a campus. Right. Where I become a campus police officer with a badge and a gun deputized by the county. Right. Right. The second one, Mark, is we keep forgetting that the reason that police don't get um, sometimes indicted, but more often than convicted is because the law says that the justification for use of force is the perception of threat by the officer. Yep. So that was why in California, when they changed that one word in the policy, it literally went from the police officer's perception of threat to the actual threat. Right. And what this says is, if I feel threatened, I can use whatever force I deem necessary to stop the threat. The problem with that is when I kill somebody, they're never on the other end of that witness stand to say what threat they were or not. Yeah. And so now it's only in the mind's eye of an officer who is bringing a whole bunch of shit to the table, whether it's legitimate racism, whether it's ignorant fear. I'll, I'll, I'll give maybe one or two that uh, in the name of, of, of being reasonably human. But, but either way, as we start talking about winnable things, yeah. to me, you're, n you're never going to get police officers to fully be accountable for excessive force when you've literally said that the use of force is their discretion. Right. right. Period. Never. Period. It's never. never going to change. And so I think those are, those are winnable things. The, the question for us is we can't go to Minneapolis and march in Minneapolis to make that happen in Baltimore. Right. And so as, as folks start asking themselves, what can they do? And I think the, the knee-jerk reaction for us in our anger is to always go to the place that the most recent incident is. Yep. Versus saying, I got police right now yeah. that, that used excessive force and nobody had a camera. Or, or I have I have police chiefs or commissioners that are intentionally hiring people, right? That are racist in yeah. my community, because what happens is all the energy gets put into Brother Floyd, and then the outcome of the blood Brother Floyd, um, whether it's a case or incident, becomes the emotional energy of our response but not the fuel that determines what happens next. Right. And then it becomes selfish. So then it becomes very much selfish, right? Because it's about me getting my energy out, my anger out. My I can have my revolutionary story that I told my, tell my grandkids. It, it becomes about that and not about organizing. I mean, just as a concrete example, people in, in uh, Michigan, I'm sorry, people in Minneapolis are saying, please don't come unless you have a specific skill set that we say we need and we invite you, we don't need more people descending upon this place. It's why I didn't go to Ferguson. Right. 
like I, I, I have justifiably been an activist. Yeah. And I have been engaged in this work either as a journalist or as an organizer or as a trainer. When Ferguson happened, I had a bunch of people say, are you on the way? And I said, no. I said, because I know a bunch of capable people who don't live in Ferguson, who are on the ground talking to brothers and sisters from Ferguson. Yeah. Me saying I need to go is a lie. Right. And then and then me feeling like I got to be there broadcasting from Ferguson is selfish. Right. When when there are brothers and sisters there that are more capable than me because they're more relevant to the moment. And and so I can be more helpful here in Baltimore. And and this is obviously before Freddie Gray. Freddie Gray, yeah. Um, and, and engaging, and so I'm, I'm interested. Do, do you mind if we take a couple questions from people? Yeah, let's do it. As, let's as, do it. As we think about um, just, I ask that you all come from two places. One is, what can we do from a organizing political standpoint, and then what can we do from a mental health standpoint? Um, and we can just spend the, the time that we have left talking about real solutions. Because uh, I know that that's what so many of you are, are concerned with. Exactly. Um, I, kn I know, Mark, somebody just mentioned this whole riot notion. You got a whole video already about the fact that, that this is a, a, a rebellion and not a riot. Exactly. Uh, and, and I'm so tired of that bullshit. Um, because every time even some, some of my white friends in Baltimore talk about, well, you remember the riot? And I'm like, no, I don't remember a riot in Baltimore at all. Exactly. Um, <laughs> we, we can talk about that. But no, to, to somebody's point, um, Mark did an amazing job of breaking down why this, not just the rhetorical definition of riot versus rebellion, but, but why this is a rebellion versus a riot. Um, what can we ask of our true non-black friends, particularly white ones, how can they realistically help us? I got a real problem with this. This, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this right now, Mark. Why? Tell me why. Because I don't fucking want to talk to white people right now. <laughs> That's I, fair. I, I, I just don't. And I'm not saying it's not necessary. I'm not saying that some people shouldn't. Like, I want to talk to us. Like, I want to make sure we're good. I want to make sure that our mental health is good. I want to make sure that the folks that want to deal with tactics are good. I want to make sure that people have the reason to do the things that they need to do. Like, I'm tired of, of, of like, begging yeah. white folks to talk to other white people about shit that they should have been talking about before and that if they really believed in it, they would have been doing it anyway. Um, yeah. Maybe that's unfair, and I, and I will acknowledge that that might be unfair. Um, but it's real. I mean, I don't think it's you're, unfair. You're you're much more sophisticated than I, in that regard. And and I'm 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 curious, I'm curious about about you just mean I can tolerate white you. people a little bit more some days. <laughs> I you, listen, I, I I was the one that went on air when you got fired from Fox. I didn't understand how you worked there. So <laughs> listen, I, I I have always been in awe of your ability to be spookish. Uh, and simultaneously revolutionary for those who <laughs> understand the Greenlee reference. Man, it's a... Right. <laughs> it's a... <laughs> important caveat. Um, it, it, it's important. I mean, I, I think for me, I, I think the first thing is is to make it clear that this is that ending this racism, ending 
white supremacy is white people's work. Um, so, so even when we say we don't want to, we're tired of talking to white people about it, it doesn't mean we're taking the labor from them and saying we'll end racism, we'll end white supremacy. No, we're just saying, you know, we, in some ways we're reenacting the same performance every time there's a crisis and white people continue to appeal to, to innocence and ignorance and naivete around this stuff as if they didn't know when in fact they did. So there is an exhaustion about it. What I tell white people, first of all, is organizing your own neighborhoods, organizing your communities. Don't come to us. You know, too often, you know, I, I, I'll never forget this. We were marching in New York uh, a few, um, uh, uh, during Eric Garner. It was during Eric Garner. We had blocked the highways, and we were marching with our uh, I Can't Breathe um, T-shirts on. And these white, there were some, a couple white activists in the back of the group. They were all over, but somewhere in the back, and they started tearing down signs and shit in New York City. We were marching peacefully, they tearing down signs. And we were like, yo, bro, like, you might not want to tear them signs down because when the police show up, you know how this movie ends, right? Y'all going to be on the news explaining why these other 898 Negroes got locked up. So, um, and that's not what allyship looks like. <laughs> White boy said, <laughs> I, I never forget, he said, you all need to stop with your respectability politics. So, multiple things wrong with that, right? One is the wrong analysis of respectability policy. That's not even what the shit means. Second, who is you to tell me how to how to navigate this shit, right? That, um, you, that was um, that was Joe Biden's nephew, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it was Joe Biden's nephew, Tom Hanks' son. It was a couple of them, and 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 I'm sitting there like, y'all got this all wrong. This is why it's not that I don't want you at this march per se. But why don't you go lead your folk? You know what I'm saying? Uh, somebody said he's right. Though. Nah, oh, I don't know who you're saying is right, but th this guy wasn't right. Again, it's tactical. And respectability politics doesn't mean that we don't have discipline and order in how we navigate the world. We weren't not ripping down signs because we cared about what white people thought. We were not ripping down signs because we didn't want to go to jail. We didn't want to get shot. And we had an action that we were trying to do. And, well, and, 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 and does, ripping, does ripping down signs help you in any way, shape, or form accomplish the mission for which you're there. Exactly. And that wasn't what we were there for. And I said to the white boys after, I said, look, I said, if you want to help us, one, white, to answer the person's question as well, white allies should be listening more than they talking. Two, organizing your community. Three, understand your positionality. You wearing an I can't breathe shirt. No, Jim, you can breathe, right? You should be wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt because a white person asserting that Black Lives Matter is actually... A, a, a subversive act. It actually is a revolutionary act at a moment where anti-blackness prevails. That's different than saying, because you, you, you can't, you're not us. And it's okay that you're not us. But, organize, but organizing your community, right? And it's not enough, it's not enough to, to, to go jogging for Ahmad. It's not enough to, to change your hashtag. Those are empty gestures. It's not enough to have your adopted son dance to Michael Jackson on Twitter. None of that is enough. Well, just for example, what, 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 what I need you to do is use your leverage at the Thanksgiving table when your uncle says the racist joke. You need to be the one speaking back to it. Don't just laugh it off and say that's Uncle Chuck and then come back to college or come back to me and Jeff and say, I got this racist uncle. I'm not like him. I voted for Obama. That's not helpful. What's helpful is you speaking out against white supremacy in that moment. What's helpful is you voting your, your, your our interest, not your whiteness. That's what's helpful. What's helpful is you putting your body on the line, your reputation on the line, your professional standing on the line. Because I, I got a T-shirt that says solidarity is a verb. That's what solidarity is, right? 
action, not just talking that shit, but living it. Because if you don't do that, then I really, I ain't got no yes. sympathy for you. Yes. And, and if we're going to be historically accurate, when we think about the allies that were white in, in various other movements, it was always tactically institutional yeah. when it was effective. Yes. It wasn't about it wasn't about these shows of these emotional shows, which are really just new age philanthropy. Yeah. Um, and, and philanthropy, traditional philanthropy is how can wealthy people pay for programs that don't change anything, yep. but make them feel better about what doesn't get changed. And equally, this bullshit ass ally stuff is about how can I show up to stuff? in a way that it makes me feel good about what I won't do right. to actually help make transformative change. Right. And, and I just don't have an effort for it when I know that there are babies of ours that need to be talked to. Yes. And there are elders of ours that need to be comforted. And there are soldiers right now that are getting ready to get led in the wrong direction who need to be given that M1 talk about tactics and strategy. Mm -hmm. And that's not something, frankly, that can happen over IG because right. because we already got enough infiltrators in Minneapolis as it is. Right. Let alone trying to have tactical conversations on social media. And so even as we give out some of these recommendations, these are 50 foot 50,000 foot high level recommendations that provide direction for folks that may not have directions. They're not deep rooted tactical conversations about what we're going to go out and do tomorrow because you don't do that on IG. You don't and do that. So, and so I'm, I, somebody asked about um, how do we keep the focus on policy? Because because you earlier talked about, you know, winnable, winnable goals. Policy is not sexy, though. And and a lot of people don't feel like they believe in it. But so 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 their their engagement is about fulfilling a psychological, emotional need to connect not necessarily to plug into a tactical strategy of transformation. And, and we've seen that a lot no, that's over, true. The last, over the last five years in particular because so many of our young people have never been connected to institutional infrastructure. Right. And so, and, 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 I'm not, and, and Mark, please, for, especially for those listening, I'm not saying that's wrong because th there's been a lot of reasons that some of those institutions shouldn't have been connected to by those young people. So so I am not at all saying that they should have NAACP organizations. I'm saying that when you don't have institutional infrastructure, you risk a lack of sustainability. Mm -hmm. And and so you've been much more engaged, I think, on the ground in the last five years than I have, um, especially with, with some of some grassroots activists what do you see as the future for sustainability and supporting because so I heard I saw somebody ask earlier um, and I'm like no we don't need a national leader no we need national infrastructure that supports local driven shit yeah without without the authority to tell local people what they should do locally right because to me, real national leadership says, oh, my God, Mark's doing this in Philly. How do I leverage resources to expand capacity? Here's what these youngins are doing in Minneapolis. How without a press conference, a press release, a, a, an award to myself, 
um, <laughs> A, or any of this other shit, how do I quietly connect resources through people, through or, towards uh, tactical know-how, actual cash, training to folks on the ground without having everybody need to fucking know about it. Right, and that's and, the... And, and to me, that's been the missing link for us. Yeah. Our lack of, of acknowledging what we deserve <laughs> has put us in a place where we want to have press conferences about what we planning to do. Yep. Instead of mobilization around the first step of a... Uh, uh, Mark, I, I, I never forget, in 2003, I, I was trying to, trying to get rich because I didn't want to be poor. And so I was doing some aspirational purchases. <laughs> and one of my aspirational purpose purchases was Worth Magazine. Uh, and Worth, Worth Magazine is essentially for people who are wealthy, not even rich. And I said, so let me read what wealthy people are reading. And in 2003, they had a three-part series. Now, mind you, Worth Magazine cost $25. Jesus. For the magazine. <laughs> That's a this smooth hustle. Like, this, this was like buying a book. I'm like, I'm buying a book. That was how I convinced myself. But the article series was the family's 100-year financial plan. Right. I, I, I said, I'm, I'm confused. Right. W what do you mean the family's 100-year financial plan? And it literally broke down how some of the richest family in America were managing their money, how each generation was given a pot of the personal money to manage, mm. and that they were actually competing against each other within the family for which generation had the ability to leverage the family's personal wealth for more money. This wasn't the companies they owned. This was the personal, personal. wealth, Damn. right? And so it, it immediately said to me, we may not be talking, sure, we should talk about finances through the lens of 100 years, but we should be talking about freedom and power and equity for black people within the scope of a 100-year plan. Because if we're 150 years out of slavery as of last year, right, for something that we were in America in legally, legislatively for 380 some years, then if we, if we think about what's the trajectory between now and that moment, for me, that changes how we work. Yeah. And it changes how we work through this lens of, I don't expect for me to come up with the solutions to our people before I die. It says I'm in a relay race, and my job is to hand the baton off to my children in a better place in the race than when I received the baton. Yeah. Now I can remove all ego that I'm going to be the next king or Malcolm or I'm going to create the next Black Panther Party for self-defense because we don't need the next Black Panther Party for self-defense or the next Angela Davis or the next anybody. We need the you, whoever you are to insert your unique brilliance and genius and innovation into this moment in a way that nobody else ever has before to be able to create outcomes that have never been created before. We have so little to hold on to, Mark, that I feel like we have these historical moments of, of um, we're, we're longing for historical moments of, of repeating somebody else's glory. Yeah. 
versus new moments of productivity. Because, because those brothers and sisters weren't celebrating those moments as if they were reading a history book. No, they, they were navigating life. They were benchmarks on yeah. a broader strategy of transformation. Right. And we just haven't talked about it that way. And so, so, so for a lot of the brothers and sisters listening, my hope is that, one, to Mark's point, you recognize that you deserve to make a fundamental pragmatic difference in the lives of black people because you were born, just because you were born, to figuring out where is the place you want to do it. And so not trying to do what everybody else is doing. And so one of my boys was like, yo, I'm about to get in the car and drive to Minneapolis. I'm like, one, um, no. Um, because you're the most socially awkward dude I know and you're going to get hurt by black people right? when you show up in a community you don't know looking the way you do, talking the way you do like what is your unique gift and what do you have the ability to offer right. and if it's writing, write if it's, if it's making websites or, or, or apps for brothers and sisters in the movement then do the tech piece if it's finance and how are we leveraging dollars in a way that we've never effectively done for grassroots people? If it's counseling, how are you getting to the organizers so that you can try to set up virtual therapy sessions because mm. they need it Definitely. every single day? If if it's if it's private, if you're if you're if you're a physician, how many of these young brothers and sisters have never had an annual exam because they don't have insurance, they don't have access to care, they don't trust any doctors? And, and, and they're on the front line suffering from 25 previously existing conditions for everything from uh, gum disease to hypertension because they've never even gotten to a doctor because no doctors that constantly talk about they want to be in a movement talk to movement leaders about their health. That's it. And so it's, it's, it's just like how can you rest in the space that you have expertise or the space where you are – um, trying to create mastery and then figuring out how you do that with five people within a five square mile radius of where you live. Right. Not how are you about to make an impact in Minneapolis when you ain't done nothing in Cleveland. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, and that's where you live. Yeah. So, so my, my, my hope, Mark, but, but, but I, I say all that to say, can we do that not within Here's how I'm going to change the game by the end of next year. Can we think of that through the lens of how will we do that over the next hundred years? And if you do that, you literally will now have to create allyships with people you hate on who actually were sent to you to do work with. Yes. Because you can't do a hundred year work by yourself. You can't do it by yourself. And, and, and I mean, you, you answered the question beautifully. And, and I think I, I agree with everything you just said. I think at the end of the day, we have to um, know what the end game is. You know, if if a family has a 100-year financial plan, they know mm. that in 100 years they want to be in this place. I think some of the challenge of our struggle is that we don't all have the same end game. Yes. Some people, the end game is looking like white folk. Yes. For some, the end game was a black president. For some game, yep. it was free. Until we got free and said, wait a minute, we're free, but we're not equal. Right. Yeah. So is is a, is a financial equity. You know what what does freedom look like? Right. What does justice look like? What is what is a hundred years for us or fifty years for us look like? Because what is it for you? That's a great question. Um, 
I think it is my short answer will be self-determination. And I mean that in, in, in not just as some sort of nationalist cliche, but I, I think it's not enough to say that we all can do what we want. I think a clearer vision for me is the idea that we should be able to create, to, we should be in a position where we, where we as black people feel, feel empowered and capable of determining what our destiny is. And, and then on top of that, determine what that destiny is. The problem is we still as a people aren't convinced that we have a right to choose our destiny. We still think we're hostage to fortune, that, that whatever happens just happens. So I'm saying I want to I want to be in a place. Where, first of all, where black folks say, you know what, we can decide who we're going to be and what we're going to be. And that doesn't mean we all going to be the exact same thing, but as a community, right. we should have freedom. What does freedom mean to me? It means to me access to housing, access to health care, right? Access to access to build a world after our image and likeness. So I don't have to turn on the TV and see folks that don't look like me. So that our babies don't have to read books that don't that don't reflect their stories and their, and their narratives. So that. You know, we our ways of worshiping, our ways of believing, are there, right? Right now, our blackness destines us to premature death. Right, the thing that makes us vulnerable to premature death is the fact that we are black. I want to live in a world where that no longer is the case, but that's the beginning. But that's just the beginning. Yeah, that just makes us human. You know, they asked Asada Shakur what freedom looks like, and she said, I can't tell you what freedom looks like because I've never been free. I can only share my vision to you or what I think freedom might be. Yes. So so, so if I struggle to answer the question of, of what, the, what the end game looks like, but I know at the very least I want us to get in a position where we feel empowered to make the choice, and then we can impose the values and the principles that we think we need, again, around freedom, self-determination, around justice, around access to housing, health care, all of that stuff. But it comes back to me to where we started. I know we got to wrap because they're going to cut us off in a minute. Yeah. Especially when we start talking like this. Um, <laughs> it, it comes down to those three things. Good love, healthy choices, and second chances. At the personal level, we talked about it. But again, at the structural level, how can we end up in a place where black folk feel loved, feel valued, where we love ourselves, where we love who we are, where we see love and value in each other? Good love, healthy choices so that we can choose a destiny for us that makes sense, because it doesn't make sense to choose our own destiny if we choose to be like our oppressors, you know? And that, that is the fundamental challenge that most of sub-Saharan Africa has dealt with for the last 50 years. That's right. That's exactly right. Because the vision, Paulo Freire in the book Pedagogy of the Oppressed talks about, he says, for the oppressed, to be is to be like, and to be like is to be like the oppressor. The oppressor. Our only vision of humanity is to be like the people who hold us down. Our only vision, our only vision of feminism sometimes is to be as trifling as men. Our only vision of black liberation is to be able to act like w white people. You know what I mean? And so we need to imagine new selves. What I call but that's it. But that's it. Yeah. Like that. That for me. That for me is the 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 furthest end game that I can conceptualize. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. I when I define when I define power power for me is the freedom to conceptualize yes. the manifestation of what I was put on earth to do. Yes. Boom. Right. Because if I have the freedom to conceptualize why God put me here, mm -hmm. I don't spend my whole life, and, 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 you know, I'm sorry I put the God thing in for those of you, like, for whatever you re whatever reason you believe you were born, I, like, 
if I have the freedom con to conceptualize the actual purpose for which my life in this universe makes sense, then that's power. Yes. And to pursue the manifestation of that, that's power. And so I hope that my children will be able to further conceptualize that because to your point, my hope is that my babies aren't, aren't, aren't shackled by the things that I'm emotionally and mentally shackled by. Yes. That their children are, it's like my, my, my daughter once said to me, daddy, you didn't seem excited about that idea I just gave you. And I said, I'm not. Mm. And, and she started to storm off. And, and I said, well, baby, do you want to know why I'm not excited? She said, okay. I said, because it makes sense to me. Mm. And, 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 I'm never going to be excited about your idea until it doesn't make sense to me because the shoulders that you stand on give you a vantage point to see things that I've never seen in a way that I've never seen them. And you have a set of resources to do things that I never had when I was your age. And so until you come to me and say something, I'm like, well, what does that word mean? <laughs> and wait a minute, how, how does that make sense that you're not doing your job? Because when I think about what the ancestors have called on us to be, it is revolutionarily more than they had the capacity to be, than they had the knowledge to be, than they had the flexibility to be. And that's also, Mark, how we're able to give ourselves grace. Yep. Because as Second long chance. as I am revolutionarily more than what I knew, yep. it doesn't matter what I can't accomplish. It matters that I gave myself fully to being revolutionarily more Yep. Than those that fed into me. Yep. And and if we could start there, um, then then damn it, man, what what could we not do? Man, I'm so excited we did this, bro. Man, this is this is my this is the best part of my week, man. Honestly, I, it's crazy. I've been on IG for years. I just did my first IG live last week, so because I'm I'm old and don't know how to do this stuff. But <laughs> we need to do this. People have been saying we need to do this on a regular basis, man. So let's 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 figure this out and, and do this on a regular basis. And talk no, about let, let's commit right now. Okay. You and I, once a week. Done. Done. And and I and I don't I don't know if either of us, for those of you that like um that like programming, I don't know if either one of us can say every week on this day at this time. Right. But yeah. I'm willing to commit to you and I once a week. Right. Um, and we'll give y'all we'll notice. Out. We'll give y'all a little notice. Yeah, absolutely. And we ain't got a brand and nothing but brothers. Yep, we just rapping, man. We just rapping, My man. man. I love you, bro. I love you, man. We go, I, I'll talk to you soon. And I, and I, and I, and in full transparency, I, I, I said I, I got to do a live with Mark today. But this dude don't never respond. <laughs> <laughs> you ain't like I'm the worst texter ever, y'all. So, I dude, when when you responded, I'm like, oh, this is the, the God, the universe, the <laughs> galaxy, Oprah Winfrey, Tom Cruise, all aligning with their spiritual powers to say this has gotta happen. Uh, you know that your brother when they grind you up like this. You, you ain't lying though, man. <laughs> All right, man. I love you, bro. I love you, man. I talk to you. Peace. All right. <laughs> Yo, I even hearing that again, man. I'm I'm crazy at how what what a great time that was, and we are gonna do that. I I think I think without question we're gonna make sure that we do this once a week. So that's it, family. I really want to thank Mark Lamont Hill for having that conversation with me. 
really thankful for who he is as my friend and my brother is also a servant in this work. And as I look out at what's going on in our world tonight, it spoke to a lot of things that ultimately happened and at the same time didn't scratch the surface at what we're seeing all over our country right now. I hope that many of you who want to be involved will find a way to, that you will be as aggressive as you can be in doing so, that you'll have a level of integrity as you walk it out. But that doesn't mean respectability politics or respectability action. As we look at the things that we need in our communities, it's over for doing things the way that we've always done them. But that doesn't mean that we can be reckless in doing them. I hope that each of you will take care of yourselves as you're doing this work. But I also hope that in doing the work, you know that it will ultimately be taking care of somebody else. Uh, I want to thank all of those that are responsible for making the Men Thrive podcast happen to my producer, Mo, uh, to my homie and daughter, Madison, for working on this show, for Candice, for Danye, for Deanna, uh, and for everybody that's a part of the Men Thrive crew, as well as our dear friends at Henry Health. Uh, you all take care of yourselves. Have a great week.